This edition of The Recap was first broadcast on the 21st of November 2015 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Ben Ryland and welcome to The Recap, looking back at the week's news and analysis programs from across the schedule here on Monocle 24. We're spending today's show focusing on how last week's events in Paris dominated many of our interviews and reports throughout the week. Over the next half hour, we'll revisit some of our programs, including The Globalist, The Briefing, The Dory House and The Monocle Daily. Coming up, the UK's former anti-terror advisor says this is the end of Europe's freedom of movement. Is he right? Schengen is now finished, in effect, because it's clear that uh, armaments, including Kalashnikovs, have been able to travel the length and breadth of Europe without any intervention by the authorities, and that is a direct result of Schengen. We'll also hear from the recently released Al Jazeera journalist Mohammed Fahmy on why prison can be the perfect incubator of extremism. A lot of these extremists that I've seen in prison have been released and I know they're back in Syria now and I'm seeing them on Twitter. All that and more coming up in this special edition of The Recap with me, Ben Rylan. Well, it was clearly a very tense week in newsrooms across the world. Last week's events in Paris have pushed the issue of terrorism back into the political spotlight just about everywhere. We'll spend today's edition of The Recap looking back at Monocle 24's coverage. As people returned to work on Monday, the briefing was looking at the political implications facing France. The leader of the nation's far-right Front National Party was already taking advantage of Friday's events to capitalise on its message. The party's leader, Marine Le Pen, called for the annihilation of Islamist radicals. And she was joined by other right-wing politicians across Europe, calling for the closing of borders to refugees from Syria and Iraq. In this excerpt, Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck discusses the implications of the attacks with Jonathan Birdwell, head of policy at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue here in London. The isolation that we see among some Muslim communities across Europe is a problem. It feeds into the sort of us-versus-them narrative that extremists then exploit. And I think the responses that we see in the wake of these attacks really sow a very troubling discord among communities. And I think that's exactly what the terrorists want. They want us to be sort of fighting against each other, and they want European Muslims to feel more excluded and more isolated because they think that that feeds their ranks. It's going to be incredibly difficult over the years to come. You know, you hear reports of very small villages in Germany and the Netherlands, for example, having populations of 500 now having to accept 1,000 refugees. And that's going to cause, I think, a lot of social problems. And I think the far right's going to make use of that. And I think how you fast track that, you know, integration is one of these things that extremely difficult to fast track. You know, a lot of these things happen over generations. But nonetheless, I think we have to start in schools. 
I think this is where we can justify quite robust government action to ensure that schools have the sorts of programs and discussions, even at an early age, that foster an inclusive approach. Of course, you need the resources to focus on language. You know, that can be the single greatest barrier between new communities and old. To You know, it's extremely admirable for Germany to take in a million refugees. But I think they really need to make sure that they're investing in things like language, in things like ensuring that schools are properly well integrated and have the sorts of programs that can help foster better relations in the years to come. One of the questions that always comes up also is about who is radicalizing these mainly young men. The finger is often pointed at you know, small groups of radical imams. It's become less. We realize that actually it's taking place behind closed doors in small groups and primarily on the internet. You know, a lot of this stuff happens on social media. Now, of course, just watching a video is not going to radicalize someone. But the way these ISIS recruiters have stepped up is that they start with the sort of propaganda and then they reach out on a one-to-one basis through private messaging. And that sort of one-to-one grooming, I think, is absolutely key. And tackling what's happening on social media. You know, at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, we almost sort of try to mirror the approaches that ISIS recruiters take. We're trying to produce film content that undercuts the ISIS narrative, but also trialing more innovative one-to-one approaches through Facebook, where we're identifying people who might be displaying signs of radicalization and then having former radicals and extremists and other qualified people reach out to them and engage them. You know, we thought we'd get quite a lot of aggressive messages back, but the response rate was quite high. And in many instances, you had people who were open to engagement. There's a lot of these people who were doing the engagement were former extremists. They offer their own stories. And we see that a lot of these people were actually susceptible or open to that sort of reaching out. So I think these sorts of models are something that we need to explore um, in greater detail. Monocle's editor Andrew Tuck there in conversation with Jonathan Birdwell. As French police began their hunt for those responsible after last week's attacks, the investigation soon spread across the border to Brussels. And something that became clear in the early stages of the case was the international scope that the so-called Islamic State is now capable of. So what might the implications be across Europe? On Monday's edition of Midori House, Monocle's executive editor Steve Bloomfield posed those questions to Shashank Joshi, research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute for War and Conflict, and foreign affairs analyst Tim Marshall. France has seven borders, which is partially explains why the gangsters down in Marseille, when they want to rob a bank, one of those big trucks that moves money around, they use a rocket-propelled grenade to blow them up. The gangsters down there can get RPGs because it's got seven borders, all of which are open. All you need to do is get it through one. You can go straight into France and distribute it to wherever you want. So that logic says close those borders. There's this buzz phrase going around at the moment of Fortress Europe. I think it's conceptually wrong. It's not going to be Fortress Europe with a big sort of ring around Europe. It's going to be Fortress Nation State. Each nation state is going to put up the barriers around organization. Itself. Yes. On this issue, Shashank, do you think it's possible that in 20 years' time we'll look back on this great experiment of visa-free travel within Europe and yeah. say it was this strange anomaly? 
No, I, I don't know. I, I look around the world and in South Asia, for example, which I do know a bit better, groups like SARC, South Asian Association of Regional Cooperation, they aspire to this. They mm. may not say that and they may not give it away in public. But South America as well, they want to That's do what this. they want. They, yeah. they look at us and they don't see us as some sort of crazy postmodern loons. They see us as the wave of the future and liberal-minded postmodern people who actually know the right way about doing this, who are creating societies that are more closely connected. And they see the economic benefits of that above all, I think. But do we then have to accept that, yes, there will be huge economic and cultural benefits but there will be costs that we could possibly not have if we had tighter borders. Yes, and that will partly depend on how politicians play it. Will they highlight the costs or will they highlight how dangerous this is? The United States right now, we're seeing very much the latter. I think it does place a premium on two things. First of all, the weakest point, the weakest links. In our case, for example, that's Turkey, the, the frontline states. And second of all, it places an enormous premium on intelligence sharing. The United States has said... All intelligence will be shared with France to the maximum extent allowed by law, in other words, with a state that is not in the Five Eyes Alliance. Tim, if you're sitting in, in Germany, you might think that your border guards are pretty good and they're well paid and they're professional and they don't take bribes. Are you going to be as comfortable with, let's say, Bulgaria? No, which goes back to my point about it'll be fortress nation state which is why Schengen is dying before our eyes. And it's on life support, and people need to, if they believe in it, Schengen needs to be held up as something that has massively helped Europe. But the problem is we are going to deal with emotion here. The moment it was found that one of the guys had a Syrian passport and may have come through Greece this year, immediately everyone says, right, that's it, I want closed borders immediately. And I said emotion because there's a partial analogy with the United States here. I think it's the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. They're very, very emotional about it and they think it makes them safer. The fact that since 2001, 406,000 Americans have died from gunshot wounds that sort of empirical evidence is irrelevant against the emotion of my right to bear arms. So why can't we fund it? If we want Schengen to succeed, if we worry about the weak links, worry about the Bulgarias, we should be paying them. It's, it's in well, our it interest needs, to do it so. needs voices like yours. But of course, in terms of it. populist terms, it's a brave, brave politician who stands <laughs> up on a stump and says, more money for Bulgaria. <laughs> so uh, that's one of your issues. But really, if we could frame this, I mean, the US has no problem giving billions to Israel and Egypt. Uh, we give lots of money mm. to the Kurds. If we could frame this as a security issue, and here it's a bit cynical because I'm calling for militarizing, securitizing and frightening people. I wonder if it would be a little more successful. That was Steve Bloomfield with Tim Marshall and Shashank Joshi in a highlight from Monday's edition of Midori House. This is a special edition of The Recap on Monocle 24, looking back at our coverage of last week's events in Paris. Lord Carlyle is the UK's former independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. Even before the attacks in the French capital forced us to yet again reconsider how countries protect themselves, he was calling for enhanced surveillance powers in the UK. Carlyle believes that Theresa May's controversial Snoopers charter should be rushed through Parliament. Well, on Tuesday's edition of The Globalist, I asked him whether the closing of borders across Europe represents a small victory over European values. I think it doesn't represent a victory. It represents governments deciding to protect their citizens properly. And indeed, there has long been a case for a light to medium strength border control in the borders between certain countries. I'm not saying every country in the European Union, but for many, I don't think that the public would object to a short pause as they cross borders when 
on an evidence base, the border control guards can decide whether or not to question people and search their vehicles. The protection of a liberal society involves ensuring that that society is, above all, secure. And I think that this is a small measure to take in difficult circumstances. I wouldn't wish to do it. I have enjoyed myself driving across Europe without ever meeting a border guard. But on the other hand, I don't find the light-touch security arrangement operated, for example, by Switzerland to be a particular interference with my travel. Now, you also believe that uh, surveillance laws ought to be strengthened to better equip authorities in their ability to counteract these sorts of attacks before they happen. Is that correct? It is, but it's not an idiosyncratic belief of my own. The government presented a draft bill to the UK Parliament containing exactly what I think is appropriate. It provides for safeguards against abuse. There is actually absolutely no evidence of abuse by the British intelligence authorities in any event. Are you concerned about blurring lines between adequate government surveillance and civil liberties? No, I think this is a complete fiction. There is a theory about that there are malignant uh, secret service staff who spend their time idly curious looking at internet traffic, credit card activities or grocery orders That is complete nonsense. They don't have time to do that. And their access to the information they need to use is very strictly controlled. I'm afraid there's a huge amount of ignorance among some organizations about the level of control that very high quality intelligence officers in the United Kingdom use and are subject to when they access such information. Lord Carlisle there in a highlight from Tuesday's edition of The Globalist. We'll take a very short break now. Still to come on the recap, we'll hear from the recently released Al Jazeera journalist Muhammad Fahmy on why prison can be the perfect incubator for extremism. Stay tuned. The Monaco Minute is our daily email bulletin covering all the topics we're passionate about, from global affairs to retail news finance to urbanism, architecture to transport. Packed with opinions and reports from around the globe, it's a unique briefing on the day from our editors and correspondents. Go to monocle.com to sign up for free today and we'll send you the Monocle Minute to your inbox every weekday and deliver you a special weekend edition, which brings you the best in hospitality, retail, food and drink, and culture. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world every day of the week. This is a special edition of The Recap, looking back at Monocle 24's coverage of last week's events in Paris. On Tuesday, the French government said it had mobilised 115,000 security personnel. Police raided homes and arrested more than 20 people. But much of the focus was on the Belgian capital, particularly the Molenbeek district. On Tuesday's edition of the Monocle Daily, Emma Nelson and Dominic Reynolds spoke to the AFP's Deputy Brussels Bureau Chief, Danny Kemp. The problem is, is that all the quotes from the officials, they make it very easy to write about because we also had the Interior Minister saying that Molenbeek was out of control, as he put it. This is slightly overlooking the fact that it's a, a vibrant community which has over 100 nationalities there. It's majority Muslim, but it, it's a vibrant place. It's by no means a ghetto or anywhere that's quite as run down as it's made out to be. You know, I mean, we see there are kind of long terraced, uh, terraced streets there. There's a sort of a thriving market. 
what is happening there is that this is an area that has for years and years been really sort of segregated from the rest of Brussels and the community segregation that you have in Belgium as a whole is, is especially exacerbated in Molenbeek. That's the principal problem here that you have a sense of dislocation from the rest of Belgian society, a sense of hopelessness amongst many of the youth in an area where you have 30% unemployment and so when the politicians are talking about an area that's out of control or that's a breeding ground, you know, this is really something that's largely the fault of successive governments and politicians failing to offer for any opportunities for this area. Emma Nelson and Dominic Reynolds there in conversation with Danny Kemp in Brussels. This is the recap on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Ryland. It's become a sad reality that soon after any large-scale act of terror involving Islamic extremists, a rise in Islamophobic incidents soon follows. France is home to the largest number of Muslim nationals in Western Europe. Another common attitude is that Muslim community leaders are not vocal enough in their condemnation. But many practicing Muslims say that terrorists have nothing to do with their religion and that they themselves are only too often the victims of such attacks. That's the view of Yasser Louati, the spokesperson for the Collective Against Islamophobia in France. On Wednesday's edition of The Globalist, Monocle's Paris correspondent Tom Burgess-Watson sat down for a chat with him. The rhetoric used by the government is not the right one. We are no longer talking about a country standing united together in the face of terrorism. We We have a government specifically targeting the Muslim minority in France, implicitly saying that they have a responsibility in the attacks. And we all know that's not true because the terrorists made no difference when they hit us. Religion played no role in differentiating the victims. They were Muslims and non-Muslims, blacks, whites, Jews, whatever. And every single family in France got scared for its own. Unfortunately, the government is falling in the trap being set up by, by Daesh and the so-called you know, terrorists who proclaim to be Muslims. How can they be Muslims when they have been killing us by the thousands for years? They are killing us in Syria, Iraq, Mali, Tunisia, Turkey, Lebanon. Whatever they are, they are killing us. How can they be one of us? And now they're killing us here in France, thousands of miles away. We have nothing to do with these guys, and we keep saying it over and over again. It's not a question of religion, it's a question of ideology. But ideology oftentimes needs a legitimacy through religion. So they appeal to Islam somehow to make themselves look acceptable. When they are not, look at what they are doing to every single country where they are located. It's total chaos. What would you say if someone came across who claimed to be a Muslim, expressed any kind of sympathy for an organization like Daesh? What would your message to them be? Actually, I haven't met anyone like that. I haven't. And oftentimes, for the cases I heard about, that I was told about, they don't know what Daesh stands for. They buy the idea that these people are fighting for Islam, or fighting for justice, or for the honor of Muslims. But when you lack information, you don't make the proper judgment. Just look at what's going on in the places where they operate. We have people who came back and say, don't go there. It was a trap, people were highly disappointed. I mean, like they are just chasing girls around, they are just doing unspeakable things. So no, there is not a single person with the right amount of information who can have any sympathy for these groups. What do you feel about this tendency in the media every time there's a, an attack like this? There's this kind of, oh, the Muslim community should express itself, they should say sorry, they should at least say something, why aren't they forthcoming? This is, you know, some intellectual dishonesty. I mean, like, terrorists made no difference when they hit us, and they make no difference when they hit people in general. 
But here we have journalists who are always portrayed as the eternal other, that somehow we don't belong to this country. And this is something that's repeated for decades. We have, for example, in France, Muslims from the fourth generation, and they are still perceived as foreigners. That's a major problem. You know, you have kids growing up and still being asked to show allegiance to France. How could that be possible? So now when, they, when it comes to terrorist attacks, they still have this simplistic, biased approach asking the Muslim community to either take responsibility or seek forgiveness or say not in my name. Muslims are not responsible for the emergence of these groups. The wars we waged you know, outside of our borders led to the emergence of these groups. ISIS or Daesh, whatever their name is, emerged because of the collapse of Iraq. We can't wage our wars abroad and when they fail, we turn against minorities to make them responsible. And even our domestic policies are leading to the emergence of, of, of these terrorist groups. For example, every single suspect was already on a watch list. How can we explain that? Again and again, the terrorists were already watched by our secret services. What were they doing in the meantime? Tom Burgess Watson there with Yasser Luati. And one thing that's become frustratingly clear in today's show is that making sense of acts of terror is no easy task. How and why have so many young French nationals been lured to wage jihad? And what can be done to stop it? Monocle's Paris correspondent Tom Burgess-Watson caught up with the former Al Jazeera journalist Mohamed Fahmy. Now freed from his Cairo jail, they sat down on a bench in the Place de la République, and Tom started by asking him for his reaction to the events of last Friday. I've spent over a year with these extremists and ISIS fighters and Al-Qaeda fighters in a prison for a crime I did not commit, and here I am in the city of freedom and love, and it's just heartbreaking but also inspiring of how people are dealing with it and how the media is giving it so much attention as well. There is a lot of context that needs to be uncovered when talking about the story of course and that's the roots of radicalization and why these people have turned towards this sort of violence that's unacceptable. In prison I've realized that many of these 19-year-olds who are bundled in with veteran extremists are actually radicalized in prison and I think that's a responsibility of governments as well to make sure that this does not happen under their own eye because a lot of these extremists that I've seen in prison have been released and I know they're back in Syria now and I'm seeing them on Twitter. I've seen the ISIS statement after the attacks and it's sort of a retaliatory sense to it that, you know, what you're doing in Syria and the bombing is what you're getting back today. And I think that we have to read into that. You know, it's important, of course, to go after these guys very vigilantly the way it's happening now, but there has to be some sort of balancing of the security measures and that is what democracy is about. Going in and bombing without having an alternative effort in terms of rebuilding was the cause of a lot of the issues in Libya and Iraq that led us to this scenario from the first place. So I do believe that whether it's France or London or Egypt, it's an epidemic now. We're seeing an unprecedented wave of terrorism and we do have to have unprecedented ways of battling that. And as a person who's lived with these demented terrorists in prison. I do believe the best approach would be a very proactive approach that includes intense uh, sharing of communication with different countries, making sure companies like Twitter and Facebook and other internet companies also step up to the responsibility in blocking these people from operating in our social media realm. However, we cannot let it take over our civil liberties and we cannot sacrifice a lot of the democracy we live for because in prison, talking to these people for a year, I've realized they don't have any respect to democracy, humanity, human rights, anything that we live for. To fight these people, you need to understand where they come from because there is this disconnect, I believe, between 
these people and how they think in the Middle East and how what they're, why they're doing what they're doing on the ground and the way the West deals with the strategies used in Iraq and Syria where, you know, the roots of where they come from. And we know that ISIS, in essence, is a product of failed United States strategy in Iraq by disbanding the Iraqi army, by not finding an alternative approach to dealing with these people that finally join different groups, whether it was for money or for ideology. So it's a long process and it begins with strategies. And now we're hoping that the situation gets better somehow, but it seems more complicated than ever. However, there has been in the past and the many examples of people, radicals who have been de-radicalized. We're seeing initiatives that do work. So it's a a job of rehabilitation, minimizing the radicalization, coming up with new measures alongside with the bombs. Monocle's Paris correspondent Tom Burgess-Watson there with Al Jazeera's Mohammed Fahmy in Paris. And finally on today's show, we'll turn our attention to a key aspect of the so-called Islamic State's global propaganda. The recent cover of the Islamic State's magazine, Dabik, shows Paris first responders attending Friday's attack and the two-word title, Just Terror. Well, on Thursday's edition of The Briefing, Tom Edwards considered the power of such blatant propaganda with Charlie Winter, Senior Research Associate at GSU's Transcultural Conflict and Violence Initiative. I do kind of think that this magazine is as much made for journalists and the wider world as it is for supporters themselves. The amount of information in there about Paris and the Sinai bomb, of course, as well as other attacks. They put in little claims here and there for other Mm. attacks in Israel-Palestine as well and also talk at length about uh, setting up shop in Bangladesh. So it's about a projection of power and it's meant to inspire followers, of course, but also... They know full well that when they, for example, slip in an article allegedly penned by John Cantley, that it will be everywhere, that every newspaper will report on Darbeck in some respect. There's been a lot of discussion about their media savvy, if we want to call it that. What do we know? I mean, do we know anything indeed about how how professional an operation is it? So it's put together by Al-Hayat Media Center, which is Islamic State's kind of foreign language media center. Usually features foreign fighters, but often doesn't as well. There's very little that we can really see from the outside of what Islamic State's media infrastructure looks like. They're very, very secretive about it. We don't know who is running things from the top. We don't know how they get all this data into one place before publishing it. It's a very, very secretive side of the organization and something which is deliberately opaque. But yes, they do respond very quickly. Yes, they do do it very professionally. I mean, having translated a a lot of Arabic into English myself, it's not easy to to do it in a way which is as well done here. And they're not only translating it from Arabic to English, but they're translating from Bangla to Arabic to English or Russian to Arabic to English. It's it's a very concerted, well-organized operation. And this is what we see with a lot of Islamic states, media operations in general. It's very well organized. They are investing a huge amount of time into their brand and their brand is central to their ability to succeed. Its key reason for doing all of this is just so it can prolong its ideological existence. It is a terrorist organization. It has global jihadist aims and while it certainly provoke a more vociferous response from the West, for example, military escalation, we've already seen that from the French, and there'll be likely a lot more in the coming days and weeks, that is actually good for the organization ideologically. It lends it credibility among global jihadists. These are the guys that Islamic State wants to impress. Every bullet that they were firing, they knew that this was going to enrage people. They knew it was going to polarize societies, and they knew that this would end up helping the overall ideological direction of Islamic State. 
Charlie, a lot of people have said, look, you know, obviously there's questions about whether it's airstrikes, boots on the ground, how you actually tackle IS at root. A lot of people also said, well, hang on, if you consider these ideas about brand, if you consider these talk discussions about ideology, there needs to be, I don't know, almost a PR offensive as well. Mm. Is there a case for saying that we need to up our own game in the PR side of things? We absolutely do. I think it's really critically important that not only in kind of military information operations, psyops, that kind of thing, but also just from a more broad across society point of view, people need to engage with this space because... Islamic State, they know what they're doing, and they're doing it very, very well. But they are still, I mean, in terms of numbers, they're not a very effective social movement. They are nowhere near a mass movement. And there are a lot more of us than there are of them, a lot more people who hate IS than there are people who love it. And it's all about redirecting this asymmetry of passion where you have people who are very much against Islamic State, but they don't really want to engage in the space. That's seen as something that governments can do and should do, and we can leave it to them. But governments, while they do have a role in this, they're hopeless when it comes to actually credibly challenging what Islamic State is trying to say. And every time they do, Islamic State just laugh at them. So what we need to do is kind of restructure, reappraise our entire information architecture surrounding the kind of marketing war on IS. It's really important that we do do that. Tom Edwards there chatting to Charlie Winter. And that brings us to the end of this special edition of The Recap. If you'd like to hear more from any of the programs mentioned, head to our website, monocle.com. Today's show was put together by Weidong Lin. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for now, from me, Ben Ryland, thanks for listening and goodbye.